find 2 Chronicles chapter 26 in your Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and uh, if you would, as you do that, please show your appreciation to the band. I thought they did a wonderful job this morning of leading us in worship, and uh, I want to thank Rankin Wilborn for speaking last week. I thought he did a great job, too. We're in a series this morning called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. We're looking at some of the lesser-known kings of Israel, and under the heading of Israel, we're including some of the kings also from the southern kingdom of Judah after Israel and after Israel had split into two halves. Some of these kings were really good kings, some were bad, uh, some were downright evil, but all of them in their own way were designed to prepare God's people for their ultimate king, the Messiah, uh, the king of the world, Jesus Christ. Now, I'll meet you in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 in a moment. Let me just make this point uh, at the very outset about what's so fascinating about the king that we're going to look at this morning. You know, the, the 19th century playwright uh, Oscar Wilde once famously, famously said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Now, his theology is off, but we understand what he means. You know, people long for fame and fortune and success, and yet all of that can be so toxic to the soul. These days, I don't know about you, but I cringe every time I see Hollywood run out a new teen idol because we've seen enough of these kids to know how it usually turns out. Grown adults have a difficult time with fame and fortune. How much more difficult must it be for a kid? Which is why I approach this king that we're going to look at this morning with such great compassion. His name is Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king, wasn't a perfect king, but a good king who reigned in Judah for a long, long time. And part of what makes him so fascinating is that he was a child king. In fact, look at verse 3. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. 16 years old. Like, how would you like to have been made king or queen of the most important and powerful nation in the world at 16? Power, fame, fortune, along with the added pressure of political leadership, 16 years old, dealing with issues of national security and the state of the economy and whether to send men into battle and more. How would you like that? Would you have handled that well? Now, if anyone was able to handle it, it sounds like Uzziah would be that person. If you look again at verse 3, notice the people who were surrounding Uzziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did, Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. So, so, he's, he's, so Uzziah has godly parents. He grew up with all of the trappings of loyalty, so he knew what that life was like. And his parents had wisely seen to it that he was given his own spiritual tutor named Zechariah, who would have given him the very best education as well as training him in the worship of God, all of which would have served to keep Uzziah grounded. And the last part of verse 5 goes on to say, as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Now, I want to be very careful here 
Because this is, these kinds of places in, in the Bible are where prosperity pastors and health and wealth pastors will take a verse and they will say, see, see what it says? He obeyed the Lord and, the God, and God gave him success. See, obey the Lord, you will be rich and healthy. That's not the way it works. God made a unique arrangement with the nation of Israel long before Uzziah had ever been born back in the Mosaic law. And the arrangement was that if they would seek God and obey Him, He would bless them as a nation materially. He would prosper them. If they didn't, they would experience the curse of their sin. Now, all of this, you see, was fulfilled in Christ. It was all pointing to Christ, and it was all fulfilled in Christ. Through Christ's obedience on the cross, the curse of sin, the punishment that we richly deserve was transferred to Him. And through belief in Him, we receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit and the eternal life that comes with Him. So this unique arrangement of prosperity for blessing and cursing for disobedience doesn't apply to us today, but it did apply to Uzziah. And if we were, if we had the time to read verses 6 through 10, you could see that God did indeed bless Uzziah. I mean, these verses, 6 through 10, they're a long chain of Uzziah's successes and accomplishments, wars that he fought and, and won, governmental programs that he instituted, building programs and more. And in all of this, Uzziah stays remarkably sane and grounded. In fact, verse 10 conveys it, I think. I think it's in a very creative way. Look at the last part of verse 10. He had people working in his fields and vineyards, in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. He loved the soil. See, I think the author is winking at us. There's a double meaning here, I think. He, was, he loved the soil, ground. He was grounded. He was humble. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the word humble comes from the Latin word humus, which means earth or soil. His success didn't go to his head. In all of that, his success didn't go to his head. And that's quite remarkable, I think. I, don't, I certainly wouldn't have handled that much success as well as he did. He deserves credit here for keeping his perspective and remaining grounded throughout all of this. But then something changes. And it probably won't be a huge surprise to you what happened. Verse 11 begins to describe the vast size of the army Uzziah built, over 300,000 soldiers, and the technological advancements of his army, the unparalleled power that Uzziah had accumulated. And this is when the narrative begins to take an ominous turn. Look at verse 15. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. Uh-oh. <laughs> until he became powerful. And now, all of a sudden, as I said, this is where the story begins to turn. And it's where it begins to sound familiar. It's interesting that the word translated helped here could be referring to both supernatural help in the sense of God, or human help 
the sense of people. And it's probably referring to both here. God had helped him in that he had been faithful to the covenant that he had made long before Uzziah was ever born with the nation of Israel. And then there were also people in Uzziah's life, like Zechariah and countless others who had helped him get where he is. But what does power do? What does power do? Well, one of the things that it does is it tends to attract people who tell you what you want to hear, doesn't it? And it's here that I don't think we're stretching the text to say that the people who helped Uzziah get to this point, people like Zechariah, his spiritual tutor, well, he didn't need them anymore. And we suspect now that Uzziah has become a diva. You know what I mean? Talented but demanding and arrogant, dismissive insensitive, rude to others, full of himself, and our suspicions are confirmed in verse 16. Look at this, verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Now, it's important to pay very close attention to what that verse does and doesn't say. You might want to underline or make a note of what it does say. It says his pride led to his downfall. It doesn't say his military power led to his downfall. Let's be careful about differentiating between correlation and causation. There's a correlation between military power and his downfall, but very clearly the text says that the cause was his pride. And why is that so important to note? Why is that so important to pay attention to? Because over and over and over, the Bible says that pride is an occupational hazard of being human. Pride has been passed down to every one of us from our ancestors, Adam and Eve. The thing about pride is that it's insidious. You don't think you're prideful, but you are. It's like eating garlic. You can't smell it on you, but the rest of us have our hair blown back by it. A theologian by the name of Lewis Smedes wrote this definition and this description of pride. I really like this. It's a little lengthy, but it's worth reading. He says, pride is the arrogant refusal to let God be God. It is to grab God's status for oneself. Pride is turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant, on one's own resources. Never does pride want to pray for strength, ask for grace, plead for mercy, or give thanks to God. Pride is the grand illusion, the fantasy of fantasies, the cosmic put-on. And every single one of us have pride. Just one thing that I think we need to add to what Lewis Mead says about pride, and that is that pride comes in two varieties. One pride of uh, excuse me, one variety of pride is the superiority variety. This is the most easily recognized variety of pride because people with a superior air are constantly calculating. They're always comparing themselves. They're always thinking, how do I look? How's it going? Am I being appreciated? How am I being regarded? With this kind of pride, you feel like with the superior variety of pride, you feel like you make out pretty well when you compare yourself to others. You're doing the calculation. Everything's adding up okay. That's, that's one form of pride. The other variety of pride that is less recognizable is the inferiority variety of pride. The inferiority 
form of pride is where you're down on yourself. You don't like yourself. You don't like how you look. You don't like how you're doing. You're very self-conscious. You're always beating yourself up. But you're just as self-absorbed. You're doing all of the same comparison, but you're not making out as well. We don't tend to think of inferiority, people beating themselves up as proud, but that is pride too because it's not that you don't want to win the comparison game. It's just that you don't feel like you can. Both varieties of pride are consumed with self and being independent from God, and both are equally destructive. How so? How exactly is pride uh, destructive? Well, I want to go back to Isaiah's story here, and I want to look at the course that pride takes in his life, and we'll uh, discover some of the principles, I think, about the destructive of pride that applied to every single one of us in the room today. Given the list of accomplishments that we've just read about in verses, uh, or that we've just talked about in verses 6 through 15, it won't come as a surprise to anyone that the variety of pride that Uzziah struggles with is the superiority variety. I want to go back to verse 16 again. Look at verse 16. But after Uzziah, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. They confronted him and said, It's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That's for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who've been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. We could start by saying this, that one of the things that's so destructive about pride is that pride makes you presumptive. It makes you presumptive, and here's what I mean by that. Uzziah was a king. He wasn't a priest. Only the priests of Israel were to perform this particular act of worship before the Lord according to the Mosaic law. Uzziah likely looked around at the kings of the pagan cultures surrounding Israel, and he saw that those kings not only led their people politically, but they also led them in their pagan worship. And so he thinks to himself, I want to do the same. The problem is that Israel was a unique culture because the God of Israel is unique, unlike the pagan gods of the cultures surrounding them. God is holy. The whole design of the temple and the structure of Israel's worship was to convey three things. One, the holiness of God. Two, the sinfulness of man. And three, to point, because of the sinfulness of man, to point Israel and us to a Messiah who was coming, who would be the way through which man could approach God. So you can't approach God any way you want, the law was saying. He's holy. He's unique. You're not. There's a way to approach God, not many ways. And all of this was pointing to the Messiah. Okay. But in his pride, Uzziah determines that he is above the law. He can rewrite it to accommodate his desire to be a king priest, which is insanely presumptive on his part. Now, I'm going to come back to this issue of presumptiveness in just a moment, but let's keep reading. Verse 19, Uzziah 
who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple. Stop there for a moment. Just stop there for a moment and make a note of this. Pride, besides being presumptive, makes you a stubborn fool. It makes you a stubborn fool. In his merciful sovereignty, God gives to Uzziah, Azariah, and 80 other courageous priests who confront him. Here's where a wise king would have said, you guys are right. I have let power go to my head. I should have never done this. And he would have left the temple and fallen on his knees before God and repented. Instead, Uzziah stands here raging at the priests because they have the nerve to tell him that he's wrong. You see, this is, this is, this is how, how pride makes you a stubborn fool. Pride says, you have no right to stop me from doing what I determined that I want to do. You have no right to tell me I'm wrong. How dare you? You're not as powerful as I am. You're not as superior as I am. Or for those with inferiority, the inferiority form of pride, you know how that often looks? You're not as much of a victim as I am. You haven't been through as many bad things as I am, as I have. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? I'll do what I want to do. As we said a moment ago, pride plays on both superiority and inferiority. You either overestimate yourself as Uzziah does and are unwilling to listen to people that you perceive to be inferior or in your insecurity. Any criticism just destroys you, so you shut people out to protect yourself. Either way, you become a stubborn fool, and you pay the price. <laughs> Your wife says, I think we need to stop for gas. I don't think we've got enough to make it home. And you say, trust me, I know this car. We're fine. And about 45 minutes later, you're sitting in a Target parking lot about 20 miles from your home in Dallas out of gas, angry that you have to buy a gas can and walk the walk of shame to the nearest gas station and back on a hot summer day in Dallas as your entire family watches. And your wife never says, I told you so because she is grace, so gracious that she would never do so and she knows your ego can't handle it. Now, that's an oddly specific illustration, I know. I'm just saying that kind of thing could happen if you were stubbornly prideful, if you were a fool. Or your friends and family say, I'm not sure about this guy that you're dating, but you won't listen. Or your husband says, I think you have an alcohol problem, but you are incensed that he would suggest such a thing. Pride makes you a stubborn fool. Hard to reason with, hard to live with, hard to work with, hard to be friends with because you won't listen, won't admit that you could be wrong. Stubborn fools don't listen to people who care about them enough to tell them that they're wrong. And stubborn, foolish pride has led to the downfall of people as diverse as kings and queens, presidents, pastors, plumbers, and painters. It's taken down nations and empires, all kinds of organizations, from tech companies to banks to, yes, even churches. 
Pride has taken down countless friendships, dating relationships, marriages. It's taken down whole families too. Pride is an equal opportunity destroyer of lives. Let's read on. Verse 19 again. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And when Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. Skip down to verse 21 now. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had a charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. Add this to the destructiveness of pride. Not only makes you presumptive, not only makes you a stubborn fool, but pride separates us from people and it separates us from God as well. Remember I told you earlier that the agreement that God made with the nation of Israel is that as long as they obeyed Him, God would bless them. The other side of the arrangement was that if they disobeyed God, if they stopped seeking Him, uh, God would curse them. That's the result of sin, you see. Leprosy was often used in the Bible as a way of speaking to the effect of sin. One of the worst consequences of leprosy was that it was isolating. The leper wasn't allowed to live within the city, around family or friends, wasn't allowed anywhere near the temple of the Lord. And in accordance with the Mosaic law, God uses leprosy here to demonstrate in Uzziah's life the destructive nature of pride and how it separates people and separates us from God. I said a minute ago that I would uh, come back to the idea that pride makes you presumptive. And I want to show you how pride separates people from people on a cultural level, and then I want to show you how it separates us from God on a personal level. So first, on a cultural level. Uh, Back in the 1960s, enlightened, modern, sophisticated Post-World War II Western culture came to the conclusion that as a result of its belief in the Bible, Christianity's influence on Western views of sex were archaic, limiting, restrictive, and that enlightened mid-20th century people were perfectly capable of redefining biblical conventions about sex for ourselves, like to fit what we wanted. Thus began what has come to be known as the sexual revolution of the 1960s. We rewrote the rules around sex. We said, God doesn't know what he's talking about. We know better what is good for us. And so we wrote, rewrote all of the rules around sex. Sixty years later, The results of the sexual revolution have been some of the most polarizing, destructive, dividing issues over which even families have separated. Here's a partial list of those things. Abortion, 
the normalization of pornography, the, normal, the normalization of sex outside of marriage, the sexualization of everything, increased rates of divorce, an increase in single-parent families, the normalization of same-sex attraction, the spread of AIDS, confusion surrounding gender, transgenderism, fierce debates about whether biological males should be allowed to compete in women's sports, should young children be taught that no one can determine their gender but them, should we give children and teenagers hormone suppression therapy and or perform life-altering surgeries on them, should we refer to women as birthing people People? Can we even define what a woman is anymore? The presumption of the 60s has led to the polarization of the 2020s. See if this sounds familiar. It's a passage from the New Testament about life in the last days. Listen. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, there it is, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sound familiar? Life becomes hopeless when we live in a world of little dictators. Lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. Does that sound familiar? Pride plays out on a cultural level and it divides and separates people. We were so sure in the 1960s that we as advanced human beings could make our own decisions. We didn't have to follow what the creator of sex said. We could make our own decisions about sex. And here we are, 60 years later. Pride played out on a cultural level, divides and separates people, makes them unable to see any other point of view, to even listen to another point of view, makes us all stubborn fools. We can't even agree to disagree because, well, we're all little dictators. My way or the highway. Pride makes you presumptive, makes you a stubborn fool, and it separates people from people. It also separates us from God. On the personal level, there's only one way to be healed of pride. I told you earlier that the whole of the Mosaic law was to point people to Jesus. In Uzziah's best days, he pointed people to the Messiah. Remember, he was a guy who loved the earth, the soil. And that, of course, is the story of Jesus. He loved the earth and the people of earth so much that he came to earth. But in Uzziah's worst days, he points us to Jesus by way of contrast. Philippians 2 says about Jesus, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Uzziah's pride came out, when he became powerful, but Jesus' power was seen in his humility. He was strong enough to be weak. And so on a Roman cross over 2,000 years ago, the promised Messiah of the world, the Prince of Heaven, died in weakness for your sins. You see, you can't come to God any old way. 
There is only one way. You must bow before the King who died for you. And if you haven't done that yet, it's your pride that separates you from God. For those of you who have trusted Christ, I want you to know that the text tells us that Uzziah was a good king. It goes to great lengths to remind us that God was his God. See, I don't think the point of the story is that Uzziah is, you know, when, etern- when we hit eternity, that I don't think the point is that we won't find Uzziah there. I believe that Uzziah was, in the evangelical Christian word, saved, right? But what separated Uzziah from joyful fellowship with his God at the end of his life? It was his stubborn refusal to repent of his presumptive pride when God sent Azariah and the priests to confront him. And I would ask you, is there any pride that's separating you from joyful fellowship with God right now? Are there places in your life that you're trying to rewrite God's commands to fit your sensibilities? Are there people in your life trying to tell you, trying to tell you there's a problem to whom you won't listen? Are you too prideful to seek help? Listen to people who care about you and their advice and counsel. Are you too prideful to repent? It robs you of joyful fellowship with the Lord. For the rest of Uzziah's life, he was separated from worship in the temple, from joyful fellowship with his God, all because of his stubborn pride. Pride is an equal opportunity destroyer, and the only way to be healed of it is to bow before the throne of Christ and continue to look to Christ and His strength that was demonstrated in His weakness. It's the only way to be healed of pride. Just bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we are prideful people. I'm a prideful person for sure. And I pray that you would heal that in my life. Lord, for those here today who've never bowed their knee before the throne of Christ, I pray that they would do so today, that they would recognize that Christ Jesus died on a cross for their sins, that all of human history pointed to the cross, and all of human history since then points to the second coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Lord, would you just remind us that there's, we don't come to you in any old way. We come to you one way, through the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are here today that they know you, they, they, they worship you, they have a relationship with you, but Lord, there's something, there's, their pride is uh, it's holding them back from joyful fellowship with you. Maybe it's separating them from other people in their lives. This morning, Lord, would you just impress upon them uh, the destructive nature of pride and cause them to look 
to you, Lord Jesus Christ, because when we see what you did for us, how far down you stepped for us, there is no, there is no distance that we can't go for other people. There's nothing that we should be prideful about. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of this passage of Scripture of Uzziah and how he points us to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.